Hi, this is Steve. We were all saddened a few weeks ago to learn of the death of legendary actor John Hurt. His unique style, honesty, and deep humanity were evident in every role he played, and perhaps none of them more iconic than that of Kane in Ridley Scott's groundbreaking science fiction horror film, Alien. Now, to tell you the truth, John couldn't wait to dig into this one, but I was a little bit nervous. You see, as I've said before, horror films aren't exactly my bag, and Alien is just about as scary as they get. It also happens to be beautifully shot, incredibly acted, and filled with some of the most daring, iconic, and influential production design of any film in history. It is available for rental on iTunes and YouTube, and there is a good Blu-ray, but if you really want to dig deep and get a great deal, Amazon has reduced the price of the Alien Anthology box set down to $26.99, which has all four films plus tons of bonus features. So, that's Alien, in honor of the great John Hurt, this week on The Cinephiles. Move, get out of there! Welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film. We explore its themes, its history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everybody. Uh, my name is John Roca. I'm a voiceover actor and host of numerous shows here in L.A. and occasionally an actor. And I'm just super excited to, to, talk, to do this episode today. We've gotten some really great feedback on Twitter. People, our, our thing is growing and so I just am excited now to talk about another film and get into people's ears and talk about uh, what we talk about, the themes and the meanings and all this stuff. So I'm just like really happy that people are responding to what we're doing here on the show, man. Absolutely. It's so getting the Twitter response as, as a guy who's, you know, as a writer and a filmmaker, where sometimes it's months and years between when I start a project and yeah. when I get feedback on a project. Yeah. And frequently it's never because most things you write, they never see the light of day. Yeah. To be able to create something and put it out and within an hour or two get feedback from you, I can't begin to tell you how much it means to me. Yeah. Uh, it's It's been a great journey and today we're adding another really important film and uh, once again, the reason that we're getting into it is sort of sad, which is we lost a great actor, John Hurt, yeah. recently. And yeah figured this is a good time to jump into Alien. 1979, Ridley Scott. If there's one film John Hurt is known for more than any other, it is, I think, Alien. I, I, it's absolutely true. Yeah. But you're a big John Hurt fan, I am. right? I'm a massive and, John Hurt. You know, and normally I'm kind of the guy who digs into like some history and background stuff. But since you were a big fan, we thought it'd be great for you to tell us, tell us a little bit about John Hurt. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about it. John Hurt was born on January 22nd in 1940 in Chesterfield, Derbyshire. And he's the son of Phyllis, who was an amateur actress and engineer, and Arnold Herbert Hurt, who was a mathematician and became a Church of England clergyman. Oh, wow. So this caused them to move around a lot, as you do, you know. And John, during one of his stops, was actually uh, sexually abused by one of the priests. Oh, wow. Which we saw kind of alluded to. If you've seen Sing Street on Netflix yet, mm. that's kind of alluded to there as well. That that was very rampant in Ireland, Scotland, and England amongst uh, the priests at that time. And so this is something that affects him as he gets older. And he goes through this, and he would say that this guy, his name is Cormac, would remove his front teeth, oh. lick the kids. Like, it was just so weird. So this penchant for John Hurt to gravitate oh to God. these, like, unsettling roles may have started here when he 
was younger and experiencing this kind of thing because quickly afterwards he becomes involved in acting he went with his mother to the Cleethorpes Repertory Theatre but his parents actually disliked his acting ambitions they discouraged him to do it the headmaster discouraged him to do it said he would never make a living out of it but he was so obsessed with it he kept following it kept pursuing it through his upbringing and then when he got to the Grimsby Art School at 17 years old he started drawing people in the nude started doing all these things really got attention for it and they offered him a scholarship but he turned it down because he wanted to focus on acting and finally the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art came to him in 1960 and offered him a scholarship and he trained there for two years and from there is where he kind of used that as a springboard to move into film and theater and become this actor that we know today I mean one of his most famous roles right off the bat is in A Man for All Seasons going toe to toe with Paul Paul Schofield uh, in that film with the character of Richard Rich just a few years that's right yeah I totally forgot that that's him in that people forget that he was his first role and he he went toe to toe just playing that part really really uh, well and then after that in 1971 he plays Timothy Evans uh, who was uh, who was hanged for murders committed by his landlord John Christie in 10 Rillington Place which earns him his first BAFTA Oh. And from there into the 70s, he does Quentin Crisp in The Naked Civil Servant, which gives him prominence and earns him the British Academy Television Award for Best Actor. And then 1976 is when we start to really see John Hurt because he gets acclaim for playing Caligula in BBC's drama right. I, Claudius, which was led by Derek Jacobi, one of, another fantastic actor right. who I'm sure we'll talk about at some point of down course. the road. And then after that, after achieving that kind of international acclaim, because I, Claudius was on PBS here in the States and people got to know all the actors that were in this, he goes and does... Midnight Express, and where he wins a Golden Globe and a BAFTA and is nominated for Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor. So John Hurt is slowly becoming this name that people know in these smaller parts or these, which we'd say supporting parts. And uh, then comes 1979, and that is when Alien happens, right? And he becomes the character of Kane. And he embodies this character so well, and we'll get to it eventually as we do the film. But this is where he starts to kind of like, what? I mean, if there's any way to announce yourself, it's having an alien explode out of your stomach, Steve. Yeah, it's, it, it, it's pretty big stuff. <laughs> But around this time, he also gets into voiceover. He voices the, uh, the character of Aragon on, on, on Ralph Bakshi's animated oh, film really? adaptation of Lord of the Rings. Sure. That's him. And also in Watership Down, he plays the character of Hazel, the heroic rabbit leader. Right? So we see this. And then in 1980 comes his massive, massive part as John Merrick in The Elephant Man for David right. Lynch, opposite Anthony Hopkins. He, if you've never seen The Elephant Man, it is one of the most heartbreakingly fantastic yeah. films that you will ever watch endure and appreciate uh, over your course of your lifetime. And John Hurt's ability to create this incredibly moving, sympathetic character uh, of John Merrick with the Elephant Man, with his deformations, with all the, to still, through all that makeup, still be able to see his humanity spoke to his craft. Yeah, so I can still remember the performance and what's so amazing. And, yeah. and I think that's one we should definitely do at some yeah, point on the show. Absolutely. I think I saw it once. Yeah. I think I saw that movie in 1980. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, 1980. Yeah, I think I saw it in the theater. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'm 12 or 13 years old. Yeah. Was completely just, I don't know, affected by it. Yeah. And I don't think I've ever seen it since. It's, it's a powerful film that unsettles you because 
that what that man endures in that film is if you have a heart at all is very difficult to watch oh but, yeah but it's so powerful as well yeah and the the resolution of it is so it, it leaves you with an incredible effect uh, throughout the rest of the few years he plays uh, he's in the Osterman weekend he gets he comes back to the stage and plays the fool to Lawrence Olivier's King Lear mm-hmm. then plays Winston Smith in the film adaptation of George Orwell's 1984 right which right. It, which achieves some notoriety in the 80s and then he goes back to voicing over the horned king in Disney's the Black Cauldron, and oh. he plays the title role of the on-screen narrator for Jim Henson's The Storyteller, oh. which people remember as Henson was kind of breaking out of the Muppet stuff. He was exploring all this other stuff. And then in the 90s, he shows up in Rob Roy, in uh, Jim Jarmusch's Dead Man, in Wild Bill, and in Contact, uh, playing that reclusive right. billionaire. Uh, and then, of course, in the beginning of the 2000s, he plays Mr. Ollivander. Uh, the wand keeper, right. the wand maker, rather, in the first <laughs> Harry Potter film, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. He actually returned for Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, but all his scenes were cut out. Oh, I didn't and, know that. Yeah, and then he comes back uh, for Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows in part one and part two. And, of course, for me, I have a special affinity because I am a wand keeper at the Harry Potter land in, 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 uh, here in Los Angeles, rather. And so, for me, uh, we've, we've been kind of ingrained to have a special reverence for John Hurt and for the character he played in Ollivander. And, in fact, people were Leaving flowers and presents oh. all day uh, after the day after the day he passed uh, from pancreatic cancer uh, all over the park and in Orlando people showed up with their wands and they did a special celebration where they held the wands up for him at a certain time. Uh, of course, uh, he also plays Adam Sutler in V for Vendetta, which I also have right. a special affinity for and a, and a connection with because that's the mask I wear as the outlaw sure. when I go and compete in the Schmodown, uh, which was I, I really enjoyed him in that. And of course, he shows up in Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, which is probably less 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 not, said about that the best that no not at all never happened uh, at the 65th British Academy Film Awards Hurt won the award for outstanding British contribution to cinema and in 2013 he appeared in Doctor Who and any of us who any of the people who are listening to us uh, who are Doctor Who fans you know him as the War Doctor and he just in one appearance he was able to create this incredible uh, connection with the Doctor Who fans which is very difficult to do because they're very critical of their doctors and he was immediately accepted into the uh, uh, into the uh, legacy of Doctor Who uh, as as the War Doctor, which was kind of this forgotten Doctor that had been referenced but never really seen until John Hurt embodied him. He's got four films coming out oh, this year in 2017. One's called That Good Night, in which he plays a terminally ill writer, and then The Darkest Hour, which he will play Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain, if people remember Chamberlain right. from World War II and what he'd done. So this, he had an extensive career with numerous accolades, crossing multiple media and left an indelible mark, I think, on a lot of people, especially for me, who have always kind of identified myself more as a character actor. When you see someone like John Hurt coming on screen, you know you're in good hands. No matter what the film is, good or bad, you always know what John Hurt's going to do is going to affect you and move you or leave you with some kind of impression. Uh, because as I said when I gave him his eulogy on my Facebook, there's something about, there's always this kind of wink in his eye and there's something about this gravelly voice of his that was so powerful from such a frail man. It was so amazing. And uh, if you ever want to enjoy his uh, rendition of a poem, Find the YouTube video of him doing the Jabberwocky for Charlie Rose. It will demolish you. Oh, right. You. I've seen it. I've yes. seen it. Yeah. It will move you, demolish you, and just just give you a great glimpse or a taste of the man's talent. You know what we should do is we should remember when we post this episode. Yeah. We'll put a link to that on the Facebook page because it's definitely worth watching. Yes, absolutely. Um, and, of course, I, he died, as I said, in pancreatic cancer three days after his 77th birthday wow. just a few days ago. So, wow. So, um yeah. 
So first of all, I'm so glad to have you do that. And what's funny is, you know, normally I try to do all my research for the for yeah. show. I purposely read nothing about Jordan. Oh, wow. Great. And there's so much that I didn't know about him. Mm -hmm. And the thing that you point out that's so cool is, I mean, this guy is really a character actor. He's really mm -hmm. a supporting actor guy. And even in talking about, you know, Alien, this role that, you know, made him such yeah. a star. Yeah. It's a small role. It is. And it's just... There's something about him which is at once sort of quirky and really natural and unusual. His, his take on a part is always unexpected yes. and really natural. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he, he's a, it's a fantastic actor, and it's a real loss. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so let's yeah. dig into Alien. Yeah, let's do it. Um, so, uh, John, how'd you first come to Alien? Uh, I came to it. I did not see it in the theater. I came to it uh, on VHS, I guess. Uh, you know, when you're ex discovering and exploring films and people are telling you, you got to see this, you got to see this. You know, it was 1979. It's rated R, so I, I, couldn't have, I couldn't have gone to it. So I remember that I rented it and watched it with my brother uh, at my house and was just blown away by the film. And it left. it's one of the first films that I remember watching going, this is something more than just a thriller or a horror or something else. This is like a masterpiece. And so I remember understanding the idea, the concept of film as masterpiece. And this was one of these films at, the, at my very early age that was the foundation for that thought. Well, it's definitely one of these films that, uh, that goes beyond genre. Yeah. You know, it turns mm -hmm. genre into the area of great films. Yeah. Um, for me, I have been waiting to tell this story. <laughs> you know, when we first started doing the podcast, I was like, you know, one of my best, uh, how I came to a film is for Alien. Oh, wow. So okay. I've been waiting to tell the story for a long time. Awesome. So uh, same as you, uh, movies, you know, I was a little too young to see it in mm -hmm. the theater. My sister, however, was not too young to see it in the theater. <laughs> so she's three and a half years older than me. Yeah. So she's 14 or 15 when it came out. She went to see it. And then maybe the next night, she had a sleepover at her house of like her and her girlfriends. Right. And me, being the obnoxious younger brother, was allowed to hang out with them up to a certain point until they forced me to leave the room. Right. And during that point, my sister tells the story of the movie. Oh, wow. And my sister really particularly at that time could only tell a story in real time so if she's going to tell you something that took an hour it will take her an hour to tell the story and she has an amazing memory and will go into every single detail wow. and so i heard the story of alien when i was 11 from my sister at the sleepover and it scared the shit out of me yeah, yeah. i knew every single thing that happened in the movie I didn't see the movie until I was 20 or something. Oh, wow. Because I was so terrified yeah. of the story. Um, and I knew, I really, you know, and I have a good memory too, so mm. I remembered every detail. <laughs> so by the time I finally saw the movie in college, yeah. I was like, oh, yeah, I know what's going to happen. It didn't actually freak me out. My sister, who scared the crap out of me at 11, saved me from getting the crap scared out of me <laughs> by the movie 10 years later. And the truth is, I haven't seen it that many times. Really? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. This is one of those movies that everybody has seen over and over again. Yeah. I haven't. Maybe I've seen it three times, four times. Wow. Yeah. So it's not a movie. I, I like. I. It's not like it's a complicated movie. No, no. But but it's it's not a movie I watched over and over and over yeah. again. Part of it is not a horror guy. Okay. And and part of it, I don't know if there's some legacy from my sister scaring me when I was a little kid <laughs> that I just never cursed me watching Alien. I've seen Aliens. Yeah. Bunches of times. Right. Well, Aliens is a happier film. Oh yeah. Because yeah. Aliens, which we'll get to, but that's an adventure film. Yeah. The swashbuckling horror film. film. Yes, it is. Yeah. Uh, it's very different. So I haven't seen it that much. Wow. So the, watching it as I watched it in the last few nights, that was my first time in 10, 12, 15 years. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So so let's get in the film. First, sure. first of all, it comes from a script from Dan O'Bannon. Okay. And uh, he, he had written uh, 
I think it's Dark Star, the John Carpenter uh, film, which I saw a long, long time ago. Oh, yeah. Very, very little memory of. Yeah. Um, and he loved the old school classic monster movies, mm-hmm. you know, Forbidden Planet and Creature from the Black Lagoon. And, right. And he said, let's do that in space. And at first, it's going to be a low budget horror movie. Yeah. And they're going to shop it to Roger Corman. And then a thing happens that changes everything, which is Star Wars comes out. Yes. And so suddenly, where science fiction had been the, nobody wants to do this, this is a bunch of crap, this is kid stuff, low budget stuff, everyone goes, we need science fiction stories. And so yeah. suddenly, it goes from being this low budget movie to, we're going to make this for some money. They sell it to Fox, they bring in some, uh, and I think Walter Hill is one of the producers. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah and they bring in a bunch of different directors. Mm-hmm. Ridley Scott's not the first choice. Finally, they go to Ridley Scott. And uh, and really, Scott's got you know he's he's another of our big directors. Yeah. This is our first time doing a film about him. And Ridley Scott, obviously born in England, his father is a uh, army guy, mm-hmm. so they traveled a lot. He didn't have a lot of connection with his father's kind of an absentee parent. Uh, Ridley Scott becomes goes to art school. Yeah. Same thing as John Hurt. Right. You know, apparently these art schools in England must be really good because. <laughs> You know, that's where John Lennon went. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, there are a lot of people that's where we this story of going to art school. Yeah. And he has a really strange way of becoming a director. And this is one of the things that I always tell my students is there isn't really a path to become a director. Right. You usually become a director by becoming something else and getting really good at it. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's like, for instance, if you wanted to be an editor, well, you start as an intern, then you become an assistant editor, and then you become an editor on small films and maybe on some TV or reality shows, and eventually you'll become an editor. You know, cinematographer, the same thing. You start working in the camera department as a PA, and then you're a loader, or you learn how to be a second AC or first AC, and you're an operator. Now you're a cinematographer. Director, who knows? Yeah. You know, we have directors who started as screenwriters, directors who start as actors, directors who started as editors, and really Scott's a director who started in the art department. Mm-hmm. And he started, he was hired by the BBC, he started doing titles and set design. Eventually that leads him into directing some television and commercials, and it's really directing commercials that he really gets noticed. Yeah. Um, uh, in particular, there is a commercial that I remember watching in the 70s, mm-hmm. and it was the Chanel Number no. 5 <laughs> and you could go on YouTube, and I remember seeing it in the seventies, and it's this woman in a bikini, in a white bathing suit, uh-huh. or pool, and I remember just going, I don't understand what this commercial means because it was a really abstract, <laughs> weird thing. And even as like a ten year old kid, I was like, I don't understand this commercial. And I remember talking to people about what yeah. is this weird commercial, and part of it is it's Ridley Scott, oh. and it, this is one of the things that got him noticed. Right. Um, his other, by the way, his most famous commercial is of course the nineteen eighty four yes uh, Apple Macintosh commercial, yeah, which is aired once during the Super Bowl, never aired again. Mm-hmm. It's one of the most important commercials in the history of commercials. And that's yeah. where Ridley Scott, after he was already famous. Right. Uh, his first film that he directs is The Duelist, which is a really cool film. Actually, yeah. I haven't seen it in a long time. Mm-hmm. That's a really, really cool film. Um, one I actually would like to watch again. And this is his second film. Yeah. We get to Alien. And man, this is a tour de force. Absolutely. The, the, the way he directs this film, the pacing of the film, the time that it takes, the way he builds up the scares that are in the film, the way he builds up the tension, the way he lets the characters breathe throughout the film so that you can feel attached to them so that when they do get killed or when they get uh, you know, just, uh, eaten or whatever you want to say by the monster, uh, or by the alien rather, you feel that every one of their losses. And because he's given you time with them, he's given you space to breathe. I mean, stuff doesn't happen till an hour into the movie. Right. That's what's amazing. And I think you can 
put this with Jaws. You can put this in the same conversation in that kind of way that the alien is there, but you don't know what's going to happen until much, much later in there's, the film. There's no question. I think Jaws is, Jaws is the other important film. Yeah. Like, just as Star Wars is part of what makes this film what it is, Jaws is also part mm-hmm. of what makes this film in terms of the way we treat the creature, yeah. in terms of what we show and what we don't show, yeah. in terms of... It, it, you know, like Jaws, this is very much a 70s movie mm-hmm. in terms of the acting. Right. In terms of the way you use the ensemble of characters, how they interact with each other really comes out of that 70s style yeah, absolutely. of acting. In fact, in certain moments, you can it feels like they're improving certain stuff, improv. and you can see it because there's a, there's a real legitimate like anger or legitimate talking over each other that you can sense the other actors are just kind of navigating this improv situation as you would in the 70s. Right. And it's so great to see that see a snapshot of yeah. that kind of acting in, in a way and I, I see i've seen no evidence i've never heard it mm. this mentioned before but i think robert altman feels like a real influence oh yeah in terms of the way That's the actors true. work together mm-hmm. is that you just sort of it's you feel as if you're kind of an observer mm-hmm. in this real life that's happening yeah. rather than this is film important moments kind of thing yeah and i would say this is almost a submarine movie you're, you're stuck in one absolutely. kind of area trying to navigate this dangerous thing that's happening to you. Yeah, yeah absolutely. The um, the other movie that I think actually has a lot to do with this, is can't, it's not an influence yeah. because it came out a year later, uh, is The Shining, which we've already yes. talked about. Because both this and The Shining, the fear is atmospheric. Mm-hmm. The whole way that tension is built, the pace is very slow. Yes. And it's really through the feeling that you get through the whole thing. It's not a bunch of things jumping out at you no. or super scary situations. It's a feeling that builds over a long period of time. Yeah, and sometimes it's the sound cues, Steve. Sometimes oh, it's, sound it's the sound of the computer. It's the sound of the technical stuff in the ship. It's the sound of the exhausts. It's the sound of little things happening around you, little blips or things of that nature that you remember as a kid growing up in the 80s, the sound of computers. But this really put like this like very uh, uh, a terror, like a fear-based uh, atmosphere around every one of those sounds so that anything that happens just kind of increases the tension and the fear as you're watching it, you know? So one of the key elements in pre-production was how's this movie going to look? Yeah. What's the design of the movie? And of course we have Ridley Scott who has an art background. This is a design guy. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting to me is that the key element, the most important element in terms of design, is actually found by Dan O'Bannon. So Dan O'Bannon is a screenwriter, also I think becomes a producer on the film. Mm-hmm. And he's the guy who finds Swiss surrealist artist H.R. Giger. Right. And... I can't even begin to say the importance, the power, the disturbing nature mm-hmm. of H.R. Giger's artwork. Yeah. I don't think there's any alien. I, I mean, I don't, not, no. not only is there not physically an mm-hmm. alien, but I don't think this movie is one that we'd be talking about today without Giger. I don't think there's a, I don't think there's a movie coming out in 2017 that's part of the franchise. Without Giger, yes, absolutely. No. He, His design work is so unsettling and powerful. Yeah, it is It is iconic and mm. brilliant and unexpected. And even though I've been seeing Giger artwork now yeah. for 40 years, still freaks me out. <laughs> it is really, really powerful. Yeah. And he brings that to Ridley Scott, and Ridley Scott immediately goes, yep, that's what we're going to do. <laughs> that's what they should, yeah. Um, uh, and, so, and so we go through a casting process, and part of the goal, they're doing a lot of casting the way we talk about casting today, which is I want people from different places, different mm. looks, different 
the crew immediately you see them and you get a sense of each of these characters yes yes right off the bat right you get the Afet Koto you get uh, Harry Dean Stanton you get Tom Skerritt you, you get uh, I forget the other the uh, Veronica, Cartwright, Veronica Cartwright you get yeah. Sigourney Weaver and of course Ian the Holm. great Ian Holm yeah. yeah and so each one of them embodies their physical presence and the character that they're playing so well that there is nothing that bleeds over into the other characters everyone is so distinctly yep. themselves that you do not see shades of either one of them in, in anybody else yeah well and, and what's interesting is the tendency for the monster in the house movie yeah is that you have a bunch of young attractive people yes that's the way you normally do it yes. you go, we're at summer camp we're on, out on a boat we're in the, you know wherever right, we are right. and you have our young attractive people that ain't this movie <laughs> no it's not that well, Sigourney Weaver maybe well of course and, and, and Tom Scarrett and Sherlock sure. Cartwright are attractive people sure in their own way but that's not, but they're not cast to be no. the hot young sexy people no this is and this is the key. So we open the movie, and we are waking up from uh, from some sort of suspended animation. Right. And we've been woken up unexpectedly because of this signal from this, maybe a distress signal from mm-hmm. this planet. And the way that it is handled, and this is so important to this film, is that space is just ordinary. Yes. Is that these are people. Yep. These are not heroes. This is a place that people live, mm-hmm. and the, everything from the design elements to the props to the dialogue to the performances is telling us these are just people on their job. Yeah. And once again, the sound design leads you into the film. The yep. All that kind of stuff. And then the opening, the awakening, it's almost, it's, it's really interesting. It's almost like a birth oh, because yeah. you have these kind of sh- uh, faded images and movements and whatever as these things are opening and these pods it takes are opening. A while it to, does. Yeah. It takes a, so this is letting you know the pace of this movie, right. but it's done so well that you, you, as a viewer, you instinctively enjoy the pace right off the bat. You understand that you strap in, you are in this for a while, you know. And it, Kane is the first one to wake up, which is interesting. It is interesting. Yeah. It, and what's interesting about the whole look of the film, and this is something that starts with Star Wars, mm-hmm. which is previous to Star Wars, all science fiction was in this idealized world. And yes. People, for some reason, wore jumpsuits, and people are in these bright colors, and everything is color-coordinated. <laughs> There's no dirt. Nothing is worn in. People don't have bad habits. Right. People's hair is all in place, because that's the, the future in these perfect sort of worlds. Yeah. And when you get to Star Wars, you get to, oh, no, people live in these places, and they have they actually choose clothing. Yeah. They're not all wearing uniforms. And now... And but aliens the one that really does it because mm-hmm. people have baseball caps and they smoke cigarettes like yeah. that one is really like yeah these people smoke yeah. and they're dirty and they sweat and yeah. they're in and this ship is not in the best shape right and it's kind of messy mm-hmm. and that is the world that we go into and it's so and the way they talk and we talked about the improvisational mm-hmm. nature of it I don't know that there's a single really important piece of dialogue that happens in the first twenty minutes of the film. Mm. Well, it's, uh, maybe that. Yeah, I'm sure you, you make a case for that. Sure. I mean, we hear there's a dis- this distress yeah. signal. Yeah. We have to go. Okay. There's some argument about money. You know, right? There's, there's bonuses like, and whatever. Bonuses yeah, 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 yeah. and people are bickering about stuff, and we have things we need to prepare. I think the only important thing is that they have been they. They are not at Earth. They, they thought they would wake up and be near Earth, and, and they're, they're not. not. They've been yeah. diverted. Right. That's about the most important thing you need to know in the first 20 minutes. The ship has diverted them on its own, which is letting you know that they are not in control as much as they right. thought they were. Right. But normally, I mean, when you're writing a screenplay, every single word yeah. has to be here for this reason. Yeah. This isn't really that. Yeah. There, we don't get a lot of character backgrounds. We do get a sense of who the characters are. Absolutely. Without knowing, you know, and, and what's interesting, too, 
there's not a lot of heat put on Sigourney Weaver. No. Uh, yeah, she's just sort of an incidental mm-hmm. person. Mm-hmm. And she's just part of the crew. Yeah, and she's a relatively unknown actress at this time. Yep. She's done some work on Broadway, and apparently she's the last person cast. They, they had already built the sets. Wow. They were about to shoot when they finally cast her. Wow. And Ridley Scott says he knew when she walked into the room. That's what he said. Sometimes you just and, know, man. And, and the thing Ridley Scott is something we've talked about over and over again is he said, I had to make sure I cast the movie right. He spent months and months trying to cast the movie because once he can cast the movie, you don't have to worry about it. And with this movie, Ridley Scott is worrying about visuals. He's worried yeah. about the camera. He's worried about the lights. He's worried about design. He didn't want to have to worry about his actors. He did mess with his actors a lot. Really? Yeah. <sighs> yeah. Uh, this, this 70s style of directing. Yeah. Man. There's yeah. A, in a lot of ways, we'll get into something. There's yeah. one story that I've heard, and I cannot confirm it. I was looking around online, okay. trying. I was Googling this thing. <laughs> I heard years ago. So, so somewhere out there, if you can find out whether or not this is true, right. let me know. First thing is, is that they frequently shot night shoots, even though they didn't need to. Wow. Which is because it's all on sets. This right. is all on Shepherd Studios in England. It's all shot on sets. Is that there's generally no reason to do a night shoot on a set unless yeah. you go over and you kind of go into splits and then into night shoots. There's no reason to do it because you don't have to have night. You could create night. Yes. He forced the actors to do night shoots so that they would be stressed out and unhappy. <laughs> and then there is a rumor, and this again, this is you. You know, please go find out if this is yeah, true. Yeah. I, I don't want to say that it's true, but I remember hearing this. That he had a starter pistol with blanks oh my that he would randomly shoot at random points during yeah. the filming to keep everybody edgy and unhappy. That would explain Veronica Cartwright's performance from beginning to end because she is she what? is just constantly trying to run out of every situation possible. She, you know, it's she's an interesting character, so she's so unsettled through the whole film. But by, by the way, she what she says she thought she was playing Ripley. Until she got to set and found out that she was playing this other character. No. That's what she says. Wow. Yeah. Again, we get to this 70s (laughs) style of director. And something that that Ridley Scott says is he says, you can be a horrible person on the route, but they will forgive you everything if you're successful at the end. Yes. So let's take a moment with this statement. (laughs) First of all, do you think this statement is true? I think it can apply. Yes, yeah. I think it, is, it can be true. It can be true. That's what I would say. Certainly, we've run up with a, a lot of directors who seem to, you know, Coppola on Apocalypse Now. Yes. Seems like he was in that philosophy. Chaplin. Chaplin, yeah. maybe a little bit. Yeah. Stanley, Stanley Kubrick. Definitely Kubrick. Definitely. When we did the Shelley Duvall, yeah. And have we forgiven these people? Yeah, I guess. I guess. Right? Because we weren't involved. We right. weren't there. Has, yeah, have the people that were <laughs> beat up on forgiven these people? You know, again, yeah. maybe yes. Because... Yeah. It's not like John Hurt wasn't grateful for this role. Yeah. This role made Sigourney Weaver a star. Absolutely. Did she have to suffer for a couple of months to get, get to this point? Maybe she did. Sometimes it's the Andy Dufresne situation. You've got to crawl through a river of 500 yards, <laughs> a river of shit to come out clean the other side. That's just how it works. Now, that being said, yeah. as a person who teaches directors, this is not what I think. <laughs> of course not. You've got a good heart, so you're not going to teach them to do this kind of crap. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I wouldn't teach them this stuff. No. All right. So, so we've got this uh, message, and we need to go land on the planet. Mm-hmm. Even the way the landing is handled, things are rickety and yeah. breaking mm-hmm. and shaky. It isn't the Starship Enterprise, you right. know? It isn't even the Millennium Falcon. This yeah. is like a, 
This is a beat up ship. It's a freighter. It's a cargo right. ship, you know. Yeah. And and this is what Yafet Kodo tries to counter all the time. Like we're not supposed to be going for this this uh, creature or whatever this thing is. We're a cargo ship. We're not equipped to do a rescue mission. And this is the whole point. This is like the crux of the entire right. argument throughout the whole movie. Is they what were we not supposed here? to be there, right? What are we doing here? Exactly. Well, and they're not that good at this. No, you know, because they're not trained to do yeah. it. They're you know? doing things. You're like, oh, why? Why are you doing that? <laughs> Uh, which I think is a key part of a horror film yeah. is feeling that, no, don't go in the room. Don't yeah, go down there. Right. Don't open that door. Don't go look for the cat. You know, like, <laughs> just leave. Um, Why are you peering into the open pod yeah, of this alien thing? Why are you doing that, John Hurt? And this is one of the key <laughs> things that, about horror films Yeah, is that part of what makes the horror film scary is that you know you bought a ticket to a horror film. Yeah. If you walked in, there's a lot, and not, not so much this one, but there are a lot of movies where the scene is a person is walking around the house in the dark. Yeah. And they walk down this hallway, and they turn this corner, right. and they open up this cabinet, and then they back up for something, <laughs> and then they drop something on the ground. And if you just showed someone that scene, and it may be three minutes long, yeah, someone watching that, if you took the music out, and if you just watched that scene and you didn't know that you had bought a ticket for a horror movie, they yeah. would say, this is the most boring thing I've ever well, seen yeah, in my entire life. Absolutely. Because nothing is happening. But when you know you're in a horror movie, right. and when you hear the music, you're scared shitless. Mm -hmm. Because every door you open, every cabinet you move, everything you drop, every time you back up, something's going to happen. Yep. And so the psychology that you bring to the horror film is part of what is creating the horror film. Absolutely. You know? It's perception, right? It's what I always tell people when people talk about how uh, international directors sometimes can't direct American movies. And, I'm, and you're right. Because when you go and watch a John Woo Asian film, your perception of what you're going to watch is completely different than if you go to watch a John Woo American film. John Woo is directing American films in the Asian style. Right. It doesn't work because our culture isn't built to do those and accept those kinds of things from American actors. It is from Asian actors, from Asian cinema. Right. So there's a whole difference. And this is what I always tell people when we talk about films and directors and why some directors don't transfer over to the American market. It's because their sensibilities don't change. They're just using American people and American people don't have the same sensibilities as their particular foreign language people do. Well, and the other variable, this, and I'm not saying this is yeah. true about John Woo, but might be true about John Woo. Most directors have a certain point where they peak. True. And, and, and by the time, and, and so he comes to the, you know, by the yeah. time a director comes to the U.S., well, yeah. their first film, maybe they're not given enough power or creative right. control. Right. And then, you know, how many good films you got in you? Yeah, it's true. It's you know? true. Um, yeah. Well, at some point, we got to get into some John Woo. I would love to do yeah. that. The but, Killer is my nomination. The, yeah, that, but That would be The Killer. Yeah. That would be mine, too. Absolutely. Okay. So, we're down on the planet. Mm -hmm. Now we have to make the decision, do we go out and go try to... Right. See what this signal is. And we're stuck on the planet because there's a crack in the hall that's going to yeah. take 20 hours to fix. Right. But, uh, and the, so, they, so they have to go out and investigate whatever, whatever's out there. Well, they could. I mean, the, the, they, they don't have to. Well, I guess <laughs> no, well, they're required to because guess, of the yeah. contract, right? They so, have to. So we have Tom Skerritt, John Hurt, and uh, Veronica Cartwright all go out. And, 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 and Tom Skerritt, by the way, is Dallas. He's the captain of the yeah. ship. And, you know, he's one of these great, likable actors. Uh, really killed it in the 80s, man. Yeah. He was great yeah. in the 80s. Yeah. Um, and uh, they go out into the storm, mm -hmm. and it is, it, again, this movie is atmospheric. 
like the sound and the light and yeah. the feeling of them going out into the storm and techniques like we're going to watch video monitor of what they're seeing yeah. while hearing the heartbeat and the heavy breathing and all this stuff. It is really scary. It is. And the, it's a lot of long shots, which I like, like faraway shots. And also w- what you're talking about with the video, the video monitor keeps like disrupting, it goes in which unsettles out. you immediately because you're like, I can't see what's happening. I cannot see what's happening. That's Ridley Scott, who used an old school video camera and then filmed it with 16 millimeters. So, so he, he wanted to distort it and distort it in multiple levels. Yeah. And this goes back to what we what was learned, I think, from Jaws, is that when you go to, when you look at Creature from the Black Lagoon, right. you're going to see this dude in a suit a lot. Right. And the dude in the suit's going to look stupid. Mm-hmm. If the shark had worked in Jaws, you would have seen the shark a lot. Mm-hmm. And the shark would have looked stupid. The more you show the shark, the more... Uh, it looks dumb. Yeah. Is that the lesson is that the real good fear is all created in your head. Yeah. And so having just starting with these video camera images that are going in and out and are distorted and you can't see what you want to see creates the imagination of the fear within me. Yeah. Of course, what I'm imagining, partially because I know I'm in a horror movie, yeah. is terrible. And of course, Ash is completely calm because Ash has a whole other agenda going on that you don't know about too much later, but you sense throughout the movie. Well, we see this just with Ian Holmes' performance. He yeah. does this weird jogging thing yeah. where it's like, what? I don't know, what, what is he doing? He just seems like this odd person. He really does. And we find out later, of course, there's more, a lot more than he's an odd person. <laughs> exactly. Um, but I think that's what's so great about what really does here is he gives you a sense of the planet and then it gives you a sense of how small these people are in 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 juxtaposed to the, to the size of the planet this is how little control they have in the situation walking into this situation and as soon as they walk in and see these this massive right. creature holding on to uh this whatever it is the spaceship and his ribs are broken out because of course that's going to let us know what's going to happen to john hurt's character later but we are we are immediately exposed to something that is way bigger than we had ever anticipated in a simple horror Horror film, and this is the first time we see Giger. Yeah, this is the Giger world. Yeah, and uh, that big guy they call him the space jockey. That right. was their nickname for him. Yeah, and, uh, and and it's never explained. Nope, not until Prometheus. Yeah, it's not explained. Which, by the way, I've never seen. What? Yeah. I don't That's know if I can heard. recommend you to see it either. I, the, the jury is very, very split on that movie. So, yeah. Uh, but, yes, yeah, so we see that and the, the amazing design. And this is what's amazing to that moment for me, Steve, is we immediately understand that this is uh, – this. there's more here – than what we were handed at the beginning of this movie. At the beginning of this movie, it's a cargo, simple five, six people on a cargo ship. They're doing this rescue, blah, blah, blah. As soon as they see the exquisite design of Giger's work, we're immediately in a whole nother world, like a completely layered level world that immediately gives you an idea that there's more here than meets the eye and there's a legacy here that we don't understand like with star wars as soon as we got into onto the death star like we're like whoa what is all this from a small kid on tatooine you know it's that kind of thing well and again more here said it before but i'm gonna say it again Mm -hmm. there's nothing like giger yes there's we've never on screen or anywhere else seen anything like the world we just stepped into yeah and this is part one of the huge things that elevates this movie mm-hmm. is that this is just you you could stare at those designs all day oh yeah um one other thing i forgot to mention is that yeah. uh, so they're in these spacesuits mm-hmm. those things were trouble Oh, yeah? Big trouble. Okay. So they didn't have a lot of money and apparently didn't really care about actor safety very much. What do you expect? It's the 70s. You know, they're in these sort of latex suits with these helmets Mm -hmm. that don't uh, have any ventilation. 
So oh, as soon as they're breathing, they're filling it up with CO2. It's starting to steam up. There's condensation on the inside. And actors were passing out. Wow. And so, you know, and, and getting hot and lightheaded mm-hmm. and yeah, just sure. they're breathing their own breath. Sure. And they're just said, and, and he kept telling the actors, no, no, it's totally safe. It's totally safe. <laughs> Eventually, they finally started running oxygen into the suits because, you know, you can't have actors that are getting dizzy and falling down. Right. You get sued. Oh, you shoot. Yeah. Well, but this is, again, it's the 70s and mm-hmm. it's, and, and Ridley Scott's just saying, no, it's good. It's good. Keep going. <laughs> yeah. So then John Hurt goes down into this egg chamber. Mm-hmm. Um, Which is once again a classic horror film moment. Steve, what you mentioned. Why are you going down there? Don't go down there. Why are you alone? Yeah, what are you doing? Uh, and there's and there's one of the things they use a lot is they use a lot of smoke. Yes. Uh, and, and by the way, this is just something for all you low budget filmmakers out there. Mm-hmm. Get a smoke little smoke maker. Mm-hmm. Smoke up the room, man. It makes a big makes it makes your crappy set look a lot better. Yeah. Assuming you have a reason for smoke. I mean, yeah. you can't just, oh, we're in the baby's room. Let's fill it with smoke. You can't do that. <laughs> but if you're in a club or something, smoke it up. It'll make your, it'll make your bad set look a lot better. And it makes a great set look pretty damn amazing. Yeah. And then there's this weird uh, laser effect that's right yes. at the... So you know where that came from? No. This is great. So they're at, the, they're at Shepherdin. They're shooting. Yeah. And who is rehearsing for their concert like next door at the studio? David Bowie. The Who. The Who. Okay. The Who. Wow. And that laser effect they were going to use for their concert. <laughs> and Ridley Scott saw it and said, that's perfect. Can I borrow that? And they said, sure. And he borrows it and uses it for, for the scene. <laughs> that's great. Isn't that awesome? That is perfect. Then we see this egg. And yeah. again, it's like, oh, don't get close to the yeah. egg. Don't touch the egg. And great don't. camera work to slowly move you closer uh, to the egg, even though you don't want to. Yeah. And little things like the drops of liquid are coming oh, up yes. off the egg. Yes. And inside, it's semi-translucent, and there's this strange kind of movement inside. Yeah. You know what that is? No. Ridley Scott's hands. Oh, really? In, in surgical, rubber surgical gloves, inside, he's going, you know, I'm doing it for John. No one yes, else Yes, it's see perfect. It. It's um, great. I love uh, it. Yeah. It, it, yeah, that's his hands. <laughs> and again, you're like... Get the fuck away from the egg. <laughs> right. And the thing opens up. Right. And he's still standing there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and inside is, they used a lot of like sheep guts and intestines. Oh, really? And yeah, oh, wow. there's a lot of that kind of stuff. Wow. Uh, and that, and now we have our first big scare. Mm-hmm. When that face sucker jumps out and hits him in the face, mm-hmm. it is a big. And I would argue those effects still hold up in 2017. 100%. Still believable. You know, you we'll, we, I know we're going to get to Blade Runner, but to me, Alien and Blade Runner, both directed by Ridley Scott, are two films that would still work in 2017 with their special effects, with their designs. I think this is what you speak about with, with him being an art, going to art school first. The design of a movie stays with you longer than almost anything else because it absolutely puts you in the world of that movie. And you, if, it, if it's done correctly, it will leave a lasting impression on you as you go forward in life and come back and reference these movies. Well, and I think this is something so important is great design and attention to detail yes. trumps technology. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You go back and look at Metropolis. Mm-hmm. That looks great. You look at yes, 2001. That looks great. Yes. Star Wars looks great. Yeah. You know, it's like, is that, and part of the key is, don't show the stuff that doesn't look good. Right. Yes, your thing is made out of cardboard. Your set is really cheap. Show the part that looks good. Light it just right. Yeah. But smoke it up. Yeah. And it'll look great. Yeah. Um, this movie, which didn't have a big budget. Yeah. You know, it's, I think it's $9 million. Which is amazing because it yeah. does look like it does. It looks amazing. Yeah. So John Hurt gets hit with the face sucker. Yep. And we get our first major moment from Sigourney Weaver yes. from Ripley. Yes. Which is, and I love too, one of the things that they do is he gets hit with this thing and then we cut away. Yep. 
and we don't and, and we don't interact with that moment at all until they're essentially knocking on the door of the Nostromo, the spaceship, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to say, let us back in. Right. That's an amazing choice. Okay. Agreed, man. Agreed. And it's it's a perfect time to like put the scare in you, and then you're, the audience is left with, what happened? Wait, what happened? So you're having to wait. Once again, it's the pace of the film. Right. Ridley is taking you through these spots and trusting that his pace will keep the audience transfixed and the payoff will be worth it and the payoff is and because we get to that moment what you're talking about we to me that is the first real strong moment where we have this building tension between ash and ripley that starts almost near the beginning of the movie and goes all the way through until ash's his head is lopped off but this tension between them permeates the whole movie and it's almost chauvinistic it's almost chauvinistic right. because you don't know you know that that ash is an alien so when ash defies her rule which is sigourney putting the hammer down saying i'm the you know to be clear on what this moment is yeah is they want to come into the spaceship yep. and the rule is if someone is infected or there's alien life form you have to have a 24-hour quarantine mm-hmm. so she says no you cannot and, come in and for and firmly no very firm even when the captain is telling her i'm giving you a direct order and she's like no because you would do the same thing if you were in my position. And she was right. And she was right. She's 100% right. Yep. Well, and this is the thing we see from her is that Ripley, particularly in this movie, yeah. is she's a cold, tough person. Mm-hmm. She is. And even, you know, I said that those first 20 minutes of dialogue, there isn't a lot important there. Right. There is a moment with her and Yafet Koto and Harry Dean Stan. We haven't talked about. Oh, Harry right. Dean yeah. Yet, yeah. Where they're talking about how much money we're going to get. Mm-hmm. And she is cold. Yeah. And tough. Not necessarily likable. No. You know, and this goes, you know, Hollywood always wants, I got to make this person likable. Got to say, you know, not, not, not necessarily. Right. But I think it fits the 70s, what had been changing in right. the 70s, right? That vibe that we, everyone doesn't have to be perfect. The anti-hero, the flaws that are within the heroes uh, th- was able to happen here. And Sigourney's character, like, yeah, right. That scene with Yafet Koto and where she says, fuck off to them through the, through the exhaust right. that they can't hear. And they're purposely turning on the exhaust to mess right. with her because they turn it off as soon she walks away that says something she knows the game they're playing and she's able to hang with the boys no problem right yeah yeah she has a very strong subtle performance absolutely Mm -hmm. that kind of arrives slowly piece by piece because when we we get here first of all it's clearly an ensemble piece yes and second of all traditionally in science fiction the most important character is the captain yes but he ain't no right right John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the Cinephile's new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game, Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old, and this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there. The Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap, or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, Steven, as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. 
Check out that unique promo code. And for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Um, and uh, so Ash, who is uh, Ian Holmes' character, disobeys uh, Ripley's order, lets them in, and we get, and now we're going to, oh, d- d- now have you watched the director's cut? I don't think so. How long is the director's cut? They're almost the same length. Okay. And the director's cut is, like most of the time, not a director's cut. Okay. And Ridley Scott thinks the theatrical cut is better, <laughs> but people wanted this, and so he put in some other scenes. So uh-huh. so did it have a scene where Veronica Cartwright hits Ripley? Yes, slaps her. That's director's cut. Oh, wow. Yeah, okay. That's, and that's a great scene. I think it's great. That's yeah. one where I'm really happy that it's there. Yeah, I agree. Um, and she really hit her, and she... Sigourney Weaver did not know it was coming. <laughs> oh, shit. Yeah. You can hear the slap too. It is like it is a big. It is legitimate. Thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then and now we're going to take off the helmet and we for the first time see the face sucker. Yeah, this might be the scariest creature I know of. Yeah, that thing is really really disturbing. The knuckles, yeah. the way the tail wraps around his neck. Yeah. Anytime you try to take it off, then the acid for blood, which I think is a great moment because it bleeds through the hull, right? right? It lets you know once again that they're dealing with something that they don't have the ability to understand or defeat. Well, and it's one of those screenwriting choices that makes it negative into a positive. Mm-hmm. And what that is, is that we don't, we as the filmmakers don't want them to pull out a bunch of machine guns and have a gun battle because right. we don't want to do that kind of movie. Right. Therefore, we create acid for blood to stop. The, so we took, take this positive, which is really disturbing. Mm-hmm. That is, he's so dangerous that his blood is acid mm-hmm. that there, and therefore we can't use guns and all right. the stuff that we want to do. Right. Uh, that design, by the way, the faith, that's a Giger design that Dan O'Bannon saw, but then Dan O'Bannon, who is the writer, was also an artist and he made adjustments to the oh, design. Wow. Yeah. And it is really like the moment that they try to, mess with yeah. it and it tightens up around oh. John Hurt's neck it's so, really really yeah. disturbing which is a mirror for what's happening to us as we watch this movie oh yeah right with the tension oh, yes, yes you're the, right, the, you're the, right. Our, our throats are like we're you know catching our breath because we don't know what's happening yeah yeah absolutely and <laughs> again I know <laughs> I know that I'm watching a horror movie sure people that are in a horror movie they don't know they're in no, a horror movie. No, they don't. Like you wish you could say, "Hey, dude, you're in a horror movie. Follow horror movie rules." Which I guess when you get to scream, that's, right. that's what happens. Right, right. But 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 in this case, it's like they don't. Okay, there's a dude with a thing on his face right. and it's wrapped around its neck, and we're not as nearly as stressed out <laughs> as I feel like you should be. Well, it's hard hard to follow horror movie rules, which I think is what's great about this movie when you have someone who's on the side of the horror, which is Ash. Right. Ash is constantly stopping them right. from doing these extra things that need to be done to stop this thing from coming on board, from killing them, from uh, being able to take over, in essence, the entire ship. Yeah. Ash helps this organism because Ash, we find out later, is an android. And it has been programmed with with when we find out later the reveal that he, the crew is expendable. 
And so he, he, that's what his motivation is. So yes, you're right, but it's really hard to follow right. these rules when you have one person who is very intelligently undercutting you. Because Koto is going, hey, why don't we freeze him? Exactly. Let's freeze him. Yeah. Why don't we freeze him? Yeah. Why don't we freeze him? You're right. No, you're not. Every single turn, there's someone who is intelligent about what should be being done to get rid of this thing, and yeah. Ash stops them yep. every time. Yeah. So then, strangely enough, the uh, face sucker disappears. Yeah. And we have this really long, again, it's, it's atmospheric, it's mm-hmm. slow pace. We're going to try oh. to find the face sucker. <laughs> yeah, that's and so it's shot great. from this low angle mostly. And it's always part of what makes things scary is showing space behind the actor. Yeah. There's empty space somewhere. So we, and that forces me, the audience member, to be constantly looking up in that corner. Something's yeah. going to come from that corner. It's going to come from that corner. Oh, no, it's going to come from over there. No, it's going to come from because you know it's coming. Yeah. And of course, we have our accidentally knock something over. Right. And then that tentacle comes down behind Sigourney <laughs> Weaver and drops on top of her. Yeah. <sighs> and, and I love those moments because those are the moments that, yes, Sigourney Weaver is a tough-ass bitch in this movie, and she should be. And people talk about her as like, I don't know, what you what you call like the fam- female heroine, right? The icon of female heroine. Even okay. though Betty Davis and Joan Crawford, all of them had been around the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Like, But she is noted as this, as this sea change, right, Absolutely. in films. But she's still fem- she's still vulnerable. And I think that's important. In that moment when that thing drops down on her, she's screaming. Yeah. As a woman would scream. As, you know, I as would. anybody would scream, <laughs> yeah, right? Exactly. And I like that because that lets her know, like, lets you know that, yes, she's a human being. She's tough, but she still has her fears and vulnerabilities. And that's great to me. I think that's in- essential for her character. Well, and this is, you know, how do we, tr- how do we deal with heroism? Yeah. So there is Captain Kirk. I, got, I love Captain sure. Kirk. And Captain Kirk is a hero. Yeah. You know, there's Luke Skywalker. He's a hero. Mm-hmm. And then there's, but those people aren't like us. No. You know, and then there's watching someone like John McClane, yeah. who's more like us, who has to overcome fear right. and has to overcome discouragement and panic and all these things yeah. in order to be heroic. And that's who Ripley is. Yeah, she's a, she, and again, she's way tougher than me. Right, but me too. But we also see her humanity in moments like this. Yes, then remarkably, John Hurt wakes up, <laughs> and we go, yeah, let's go have dinner. But this is great too, Steve, because this dinner scene is juxtaposed to the scene we had at the beginning where they're all eating food and we get to know them. So mm-hmm. we have this like real opening beginning scene where they're all together after, after the hypersleep and you're getting the sense of the crew and the camaraderie of the crew and the connection and how they speak to each other. And then, boom, we get the dinner scene juxtaposed now with John Hurt after having the face hugger on his face, the character of Kane, yeah. And, and this scene is, again, it's very improvisational. Yeah. There's really no dialogue that's important. And I, and, I, and I don't mean that in a negative way. No, no, no. It just means like we're talking about, oh, when I get home, I eat this food right. and blah, blah, blah. And you, and you know it's not important. In nope. fact, even in the mix, the way you do sound mix, in general, you always prioritize dialogue. Yeah. Is that something's got to be on top of the mix and, it's gotta, and everything else has to come down so that you can have the audience understand every single word that's mm-hmm. being said. Because mm-hmm. 99% of the time, that's the most important thing. Right. It's not true in Alien. In Alien, frequently the sound design and other stuff, the ship sounds, yeah. the atmospheric sounds, are coming right up to and sometimes going above the level of the dialogue. Mm-hmm. So you can't quite hear the dialogue, and you realize it's not that important. No. Yeah. And because they're just joshing. And what's great is this great horror movie moment is great, which I think Ridley and Dan O'Bannon might have done just as a kind of wink to horror movie lovers, because... 
the classic thing when you're in any situation is the guy who dies first is the one who says, you know, when I get back, the first thing I'm going to do, and that's exactly what Kane does. It's exactly his line. I can't wait to get back because when I get back, I'm going to do this. The first thing that I'm going to do when I get back is to get some decent food. You can dig it, man. I'm telling you, I haven't eaten bird's food in this, but then I'm tasting better. You know what I'm saying? You pound down the stuff like this. I'd rather be eating something else, but... uh, Right now, food. <laughs> and he starts to cough and starts to choke, and so begins the most famous scene I think from the movie. There's no yeah. question, it's the most famous yeah. scene in the movie. Yeah. One of the most iconic scenes in any movie. In any movie, right? The actors knew something was going to happen. Yeah. They didn't really know exactly what was going to happen. That, that was that's kept from awesome. them. That's awesome. they, and I don't know. Like, they're off in their tra- – they kept sending them back to their trailers because they're trying to get the effect mm-hmm. just right. They knew – I mean, they had read the script, so they knew that an alien's going to come out of right, this right. But they didn't know how. Yeah. And they didn't know that there was going to be this big squib blood pack. And what that is, it's a fake torso. Um, and so all of this is really improv. All of their reactions wow. are improv. Uh, Veronica Cartwright – didn't know she was going to get hit with a huge thing of blood. She's so great. She really freaked out. And she did. Yes. Oh, God. She fell, she fell to the ground in a panic. Oh, wow. No, she, she, it was a real freak out. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Again, this is like how you get to treat <laughs> your actors. terrible, man. I, I yeah, I. Because her reaction is so powerful, too. Oh, so yeah. you get the intended thing you were looking for because she's like oh god oh god like you're just like oh man this is scary as hell and there's a difference too like i've been on stage Mm -hmm. and had to do a slap you know and been slapped sure and i said just slap me you know like wow you really did oh yeah okay i I mean not i mean this all right method boy this wasn't a like it wasn't like a huge guy it was a woman and it was she wasn't you know i was like give me a slap (laughs) and that was fine you know well there was one time i was doing a a fight scene on stage uh, with my friend jeff and we started, and he, this is a guy I had done martial arts with yeah. forever. So we did a big, there was uh, handsprings in it and like mm-hmm. a huge like acrobatic fight scene. Right. And I had him just kick me in the chest. <sighs> now, not hard, super hard, but we rehearsed this thing for weeks. Yeah, yeah. I had a big bruise across <laughs> the chest. That's why they call it stage combat, Steve. Yeah. And then, uh, <laughs> yeah, and then at the last moment, Jeff only could do two nights of it. And my friend Steve Jones had to come in oh. and replace him. He hadn't done the practice, oh. and Steve kicked me in the head on stage oh. with a jump kick. Yeah. Almost knocked me out. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, that's yes. a whole other story. All right. Fortunately, in that scene, I was dragged off the stage on purpose. Oh, good. Because I don't know if I could have gotten out. <laughs> I, was, I was pretty groggy. Right? All right. But, yeah, so, but, yeah. But so we digress. You, that's right. So the blood pack happens, yeah. Um, and, uh, and we get to see the, the what's, I forget the name they have him for, the, the chest pop, popper or whatever, the, the little alien. Yeah, the little alien that comes out. <laughs> yeah, the little puppet, and he runs Ooh. away. And now we have to go hunt the little alien. Yes. Well, what we think is a little alien. <laughs> yes, right? Um, this thing grows quickly, man. Yeah. The physics of alien is not really... We don't get into it too much. No. But we should find out, because like, it's so quick that from his little baby sheds his skin and becomes this like six-foot-tall monster. Yeah, I mean... You Within gotta... a matter of moments. Yeah. It's not that much time. Yeah, not at all. Yeah. So maybe he's, I don't know, nuclear-powered or something. I don't know how he gets big <laughs> that Acid-powered, yeah. All right, so we go on our hunt for the chest bur- chest burster. That's what it's called. That's right, yeah. Chest burster. Yeah. It's hard to say. Chest well, burster. Say that five times. Yeah, all right. So we go on our hunt for him, and uh, 
and of course we know this isn't going to go right. No. Because we know what kind of movie we're in. Right. And we and, the, and then the classic horror movie things is someone goes and splits off. And we have Harry Dean Stanton going off to find the cat. Now, well, we, we know he's dead. Right. And, and right off, you say it's a classic movie moment, followed by another classic movie moment, which is we think it's the alien. It's a cat. Right. It's, it's oh, the yeah. fake got, scare, right? Got the we get the fake scare. scare, which causes the guy to go off on his own, which is the first moment that I was like, oh, this is a little bit of a trope that you send the guy to go get the cat because everyone's so scared. Why would you send someone off by themselves? You know? Well, part of it is they don't know they're in a horror movie. Yeah, that's true. That's a good point, Steve. They think they're still looking for something small, they think not something big. Thing, right, right. And they haven't quite gone to, and why would you expect that little thing to turn into this seven That's true. You say very good point. Thing with two mouths. <laughs> Hanging off a black chain, yeah, like it uh, does. So we haven't really talked about Harry Dean Stanton yet. Ugh. He's such an unusual actor, mm-hmm. and particularly in the like mid to late seventies, yeah. early eighties, he's in so many, you know, Escape from New York and all these yeah. movies where he plays these weird, quirky Harry Dean Stanton kind of roles. Yeah, and shows up in things like Pretty in Pink and yep. in random, random movies like that, Repo Man and Paris, Repo Texas. Man, yeah, right. these kinds of things. He's great in these roles. He's almost an American John Hurt. I was just gonna say, yeah, were you okay? Yeah, yeah, it's a fair yeah, point. I was just having this because he is who he is, yep. and he comes into these supporting parts. And by the way, and listening to him on the commentary track, and I, I once he has a band. I think he still plays, right? Uh, like a local blues band that oh, nice. plays in Los Angeles, and he is a weird quirky, gruff, I don't give a shit kind of character. That's why you cast him. And that is, that is what he is. <laughs> yeah. uh, so he goes off. And one of the things I noticed, and I, I checked up on it, is that everyone's very sweaty and wet. Yeah. So what that is, it's not water, because water doesn't catch the light the way Ridley Scott wanted. Oh. It's uh, glycerin, KY jelly. Oh, nasty. Yeah. Ugh. Which apparently Sigourney Weaver had an allergic reaction to it. Oh, shoot. Uh, right. Mixed with cat hair. So that's a strange thing. But anyway, because you could see the way that liquid catches the light yeah. is really, really beautiful. Mm-hmm. And he's going around and we go into this room where it's like dripping and, yeah. and chains are hanging. And you're like, what kind of ship is this? You know, and, and there's sort of this weird, why is there a drippy room <laughs> on a spaceship? And yet that's part of what makes it so cool. Yeah. And then we see and what's, what's what you said earlier, Steve, is great giving depth of field behind the actor so that you can have the alien hanging off the black chains. Right. And it's really, because it's so, it, you don't notice it at first, no. which is what's so great about the design of Giger's design in the film it's, and the design of the ship. The design of the ship juxtaposed with the design of the alien. The alien can slide into these little things in the background, these little, that then completely almost be camouflaged. And you only notice it at the last second or at the last minute. Well, and I think the first time you see the movie, yeah. when you don't know that design, yes. I don't think you see it at all. Right. I think once you know the mm-hmm. alien design and you watch the movie the second time, you're like, oh my God. Yes. Because it's a silent, very silent shot. I agree with you completely. Um, and yeah. quiet and silence is used really well. Mm-hmm. There's something else I wanted to talk about in relationship to that. There's in art terms, you talk about uh, the way you space, deep space, mm-hmm. flat space, mm-hmm. idea of limited space, which is sort of a mix of spaces. And one of the other ones is ambiguous space. Mm-hmm. And what ambiguous space means is essentially that I'm looking at some and I don't know what the fuck I'm seeing. Yeah. That's what ambiguous space is. And that and that alien shot where it's in the foreground in the chains yeah. is a good example of it. And ambiguous space is used quite a bit in this film. There's shots where you're like, am I upside down? Am I what am I looking through? Is this a big thing, a small right. thing? You can't really tell. And what's always cool is when it's a great thing to use in horror films because you want the audience disoriented. Yeah. And then when ambiguous space resolves itself and you realize, oh, I'm looking at this. Mm-hmm. There's a, that's a really powerful thing. That happens quite a bit in yeah. this film. And then we have, you know the moment in a, Bugs, a Roadrunner cartoon 
where the coyote runs off the cliff. Yeah. And until he looks down, <laughs> he doesn't fall. That's right. It's, and then he has the realization that he is off the cliff, and he looks down. Yeah. And, of course, that's when he's doomed. Right. That's what Harry Dean Stanton has <laughs> when he sees the alien. Yeah. There's this sort of like, you're in deep trouble, you're in deep trouble. Right. And then he looks, and then he realizes, I'm off the cliff. <laughs> Then we have that big face of the alien and that double mouth. Man. Yeah, man, that's some weird design. What a great, de- what a great introduction to that design too. To have it, yeah. to have this like little thing, and it's the two moments. Him and Veronica Cartwright are the two moments where they're both frozen in fear. Yeah, you know. So, yeah. Well, I, and honestly, because you, because you imagine yeah, that? yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, in in person, yeah. Well, and this is the thing we can't imagine. We can't imagine seeing these designs for the first time. Yeah, because by the time I saw. The movie, yeah, yeah, I had yeah. seen the alien design. Right. I knew what it looked like. Right. I can't imagine being in a movie theater in 1979 and seeing that thing come at you. I cannot imagine what that would have been like. I agree. Much less being Harry Dean Stanton <laughs> right. and seeing that thing coming at you. I mean, that is terrifying. Yeah, agreed. So, by the way, this is an hour and eight minutes in. This yeah. is the first real kill. I mean, yes, we have Kane's death earlier. Yeah. But that's not the same thing. This nope. is the first. So that's that's more than halfway through the film. Mm-hmm. That's what the pace of this film is. Yeah. And, and, and it's one of the things I think, again, we talk about how movies have changed. I don't, I'm not saying we don't make good movies today. I think we definitely do. Mm-hmm. We don't make this movie anymore. Not really. Because we, 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 we don't have the patience. Yeah. You know, we just like movies. The movies move fast. Yeah. And I don't watch a lot of horror movies. You do. But my yeah. sense is they move a lot faster than this. They do. And the payoffs are quicker, you know, and you get and there in, are lots of them and there are lots of them. And you get into it a lot quicker too. Don't breathe is one that can, you can, if you haven't seen don't breathe, it's very correlative to this. Mm. It's, it's a slow building horror, which is fantastic. And Stephen Lang is great in that film. But yeah, so Stanton is gone. Yafet Koto and, and uh, Sigourney run into the scene. They see the blood on the ground. They look up. Blood's dripping down yeah, from the ceiling. Yeah, which so, blood's on the camera as well, yeah. which gets you that you know first point of view type of feeling, which is great. And now we're into, like, we got to go get this thing. <laughs> we have a meeting of the crew, yes. and the plan is Dallas is going to go off Tom Skerritt and scare him with a flamethrower, yeah. and we're going to send him out an uh, airlock. Right. We know this plan isn't going to go this well. Is, as soon as Tom Skerritt said he's going to go into the vent by himself, you know he's the next victim. Dallas, you're going to have to hold your position for a minute. I... I've lost the signal. What? You sure? But look around. Are you sure that it's not there? I mean, it's got to be around there somewhere. Check that out, Lambert. You may be getting interference. Dallas, are you sure there is no sign of it? I mean, it is there. It's got to be around there. Uh, am I am I Claire Lambert? I want to get the hell out of here. Oh God, it's moving right towards you. Move, get out of there. Don't you move, Dad? Move, Dad. Move, Dad. Get And again, it's very much sort of jaws in the barrels is mm-hmm. we have beeps and lights yes. and not the alien. Yep. Is that the more you see the alien, the less scary he's going to be. Yeah. And so we don't see him a lot. Mm-hmm. So, and we should say, by the way, that, yeah. the, that the alien is played by Balaji Badejo, who is like an art student. Oh, wow. Good, more art student. Yes, of course. He's, might be Nigerian. Okay. That Ridley Scott found. And he's this guy that's 6'10". <laughs> he's 6'10 and super skinny. 
super, super skinny and has strangely long arms and legs. And right. it, it really Scott went, that's the guy I can put in a suit. <clears throat> and they had to do a whole body mold of his body mm-hmm. in order to make this suit just fit him just perfectly. Yeah. And it is really disturbing. Yeah, it is. Which it, it is just a dude in the suit, mm-hmm. just like Creature from the Black Lagoon or Godzilla or anything else. Right. But... It's kind of special one. Yeah, it is. And I think the I think there are certain moments that betray it now going back in 2017. Like when Tom Skerritt, we just left off where Tom Skerritt's in the vent with the fire and we see the little beeps come in, which is great. And Veronica, Veronica Cartwright is so perfect at conveying that yep. kind of like, oh my God, fear, you know? And that thing is beeping, coming closer and closer. And then we see the shot of the fire and we see the two hands reached out, reach out, which I think is a little cheesy for me going back, but I forgive it because the entire movie is so fantastic. Well, and... This idea that hands reaching out, yeah. it's only on it's only a few frames. Yeah. You know, if you I think the, every frame you added to it, it would get cheesier and cheesier. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. Completely. Only show it for a couple seconds. Yep. By the way, Veronica Cartwright was upset that she's like, I don't want to play she, this. She was. I mean, she, for good reasons, it seems like. I don't want to play this. Why am I so scared? I want to play a stronger character. Yeah. And I love the way smart directors talk to actors sometimes, which is, and it's not that this isn't true, but he said, no, no, it's good because you are the audience. Yes. And that made her feel really good. She is. And therefore she went and, and didn't feel bad about feeling, playing the scared character. Now, is what Ridley Scott says true? Absolutely. It's yes. 100% true. Is it a way to manipulate your actors <laughs> into shutting up and doing what you wanted to do? I think it's that too. Yes, probably. And sometimes that's your job right. as a director. Is Your job as a director is to get the actors to do what you want them to do. Right. That doesn't mean you always tell them the truth. Yeah. Now... I don't put them in suits that don't have ventilation systems, but I will manipulate them. <laughs> so you heard it here first. Yeah. Please. Well, that's the job. <laughs> so by Tom Skerritt, you're dead. Yes. I think we all knew that was coming. Yes. Yeah. Uh, although in the director's cut, he actually is not quite dead yet. No, which, um, which is a great scene. I think when we and that's to... a director's, that's not oh, in the theatrical really? version. Yeah. Damn it. That's such a great scene. This is why, and Ridley Scott doesn't like the director's cut. I don't understand. Like, the film I is like fantastic. Scenes, yeah. yeah. It's an extra three minutes, but it's good. Yeah. And now finally Ripley is in charge. Yes. How come I don't hear anybody saying nothing around I'm this thinking. Place? Unless somebody has got a better idea. We'll proceed with Dallas's plan. What? And then don't blame the others? <laughs> no, you're out of your mind. You got a better idea? And she's gonna continue the Tom Skerritt plan, but with one thing she wants to find out is what is Mother, which is the name of the ship computer, yeah, right. and Ash doing? Right. Ash? Any suggestions from you or Mother? No, we're still collating. <laughs> you what? You're still collating? I find that hard to believe. What would you like me to do? Just what you've been doing, Ash. Nothing. I've got access to Mother now, and I'll get my own answers. Thank you. All right. Because Ash has continually been uh, disobeying, been yeah. pushing to keep the alien. She goes into really cool design, sort of the computer room, mm-hmm. and finds out that Ash has been given orders to bring back this alien at all costs, 
and the crew is expendable. Steve, to me, this is the moment where I think we understand this This film is a product of the 70s. This idea of Nixon, this idea of sure. not trusting the government, this idea of not trusting the people in charge, big business, this kind of thing. It comes through in Alien. It comes through in a number of films that come out through the 70s. And, and even in 69 with, uh, with uh, 2001, this idea of computers being in charge, not you. This fear that you are not as in charge as you think you are as a human being. And once again, we have this situation. A, it's called mother, which is right. really was this whole idea of like being in charge, and this whole and then her reaction to it, her seeing that you're her expendable, and her. And once again, we have this vulnerable, angry reaction from Sigourney Weaver's character from Ripley as she throws Ash against the wall, and is really and Ash's reaction, Ian Holmes' reaction is so great in the movie because he's almost like. Unsettled by what's happening to him, his he, has, performance, he can't conceive of what's happening. His to him. performance of being a robot <laughs> is is amazing. Yeah, and it's not, and he's not a robot the way Data and Star Trek. No, is. He's not, no, or C three PO, or you know, and yes, no. droids, robots. I understand we have differences, but blah blah actually, blah. They yeah. actually call him a robot in the in the movie. Yes, why I'm using that term. Yafet Kodo does, but. His style, it's because he's this weird organic, not organic thing, mm-hmm. and his movement and his facial and his emotional reactions are so peculiar. <laughs> They're not emotionless. Yeah. He has emotions. Yes. And he is genuinely scary when he's throwing Sigourney Weaver around. He really because there's no emotion behind it. Yeah. He's just doing it. And when he's the, and the slow pace to where he builds up to wrapping the magazine into a into a roll to shove into her mouth. Yes. He, He's almost, he doesn't like, to him, he's almost questioning the decision of doing it and then decides, no, I have to do this because he's glitching. He's glitching because yeah. she affected him by throwing him it's against like the wall like that. It's like you see him struggling with the Asimov three rules of robot. <laughs> exactly, You know what I mean? Yes. Like, it's like he's got contradictory instructions. Yes. And his, he's been told you have to sacrifice the crew, but he's not, he's not supposed to. And, right. And then we have this Yafet Koto comes in and we're trying to stop him. And then... Knocking that guy's head off is really shocking. So great. Even knowing it's coming, it's shocking. Yes, yes. And uh, we should talk about Yafet for just a little bit. I love Yafet. Uh, but Yafet is one of these guys who is so great through the 80s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. I mean, across 110th Street, Alien. Midnight Run. Midnight Run. Oh, so, he shows up in these amazing movies and does great performances. He's one of these very strong African-American actors that no one fucking talks about. No. And he was so great in everything he was in. And powerful. And gave oh, no yeah. quarter, and gave no quarter in any role he was in. And he is, he is mm. what he is, like yeah. all these guys, yeah. like John Hurt, like like yes. like Harry Dean Stanton, yes, like he is just. This is the kind of this you're casting this guy, yep, you know. And Ian Holm too, yeah. Like what a great casting choice to mm-hmm. cast this small, somewhat round, kind of n- nerdy looking guy mm-hmm. as the scary robot. Mm-hmm. By the way, the robot not in the original script. Oh wow, that was added. That might have been a Walter Hill idea. Okay, added much later. That's brilliant. Uh, O'Bannon the screenwriter hated it what yeah and the reason makes the film well here's the thing when i write my script how i write it that's how it's fucking supposed to be (laughs) and if you change it you're wrong that's fair so we have to start with that (laughs) it's very hard to overcome that he wanted it to be a perfect little monster movie but i agree with you that's that's key to the film yep it elevates it so much absolutely because it's one more thing to have to deal with right and yeah and so now we are going to get on the shuttle um And we're going to blow up the ship. Well, first they, they bring Ash back oh, to life. Right. Oh, they resurrect that Which head. is awesome. Yeah. And great cuts because you can immediately tell it's a dummy and her struggling to sit it upright. And then they cut immediately to his head, to obviously, his head. through a thing, through the table or whatever. and Covered in milk. Covered and- in milk, which is great design, great great makeup and whatever. And, his, and the adjustment of his voice. You, 
this great to put yeah. it through a processor to make it sound almost very computer-like. You still don't understand what you're dealing with, do you? Perfect organism. Its structural perfection is matched only by its hostility. You admire it. I admire its purity. And then still the smirk at the end when he says, I can't lie to you about your chances, but you have my sympathies. Oh, it's such a yeah. great fuck you. It's such a great fuck you. Right. Which, which brings to end this tension that has been going on between him and Ripley through the entire movie. Right. You know, and it's so great. And then Yafet Koto just burns him. <laughs> yes, he does. Rightly so at this point. I, I absolutely I, agree. I, I'm absolutely with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so we're going to blow up the ship. Yeah. And again, you're just like, you watch <laughs> Yafet Koto and Veronica Cartwright, and they're banging things around, and she's just completely freaked out. She's nuts, yeah. And and it's just like, oh, I'm, you're going to die. You're going to die. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> And, but but what's great, what, what they do so well is both Veronica Cartwright's helplessness yeah. when the alien shows up, Yafet Koto's like, get out of the way, get out of the yes. way, and and Ripley hearing it yeah. and being too far away to help and running to help and the helplessness of the way that whole event is filmed. Yeah. And once again, that moment where Yafet doesn't do what needs to be done because he doesn't want to kill Veronica Cartwright in the process. But in the end... It's a noble thing what he does, but it leads to his death. Right. You know? Well, and it's like, I can't imagine yeah. in, in a matter of seconds, in a high-stress situation, making the decision to yeah. kill this woman. That's true. I don't that's know, absolutely true. You know, that is, that's tough. And it's great drama to the film. It's great tragedy to the film because he dies in a noble way. Because Parker is a noble character, I think, through the whole film. His ideas of what should be done are correct at every moment. Even when he's bitching about a bonus or whatever. Right. He's, and he's kind of disrespectful to Sigourney at the beginning. But he's a noble character throughout the film because he wants to survive. Of course. And he knows what, is, what needs to be done to survive. And even in that moment, he cannot kill Veronica Cartwright right. because he, he just can't have... He's not within him to do that. Yeah. Right. And he well, dies trying to save her by running into the alien and trying to fight it you know well and it goes back to what we've been saying from the beginning which is these are ordinary people yeah this is not what we're going to see in aliens yeah where we have the toughest you know space marines in the world yeah this is like these are just some guys working on a cargo ship yeah. that get into this situation and are doing the best they can mm -hmm. um and then we get things get really chaotic now the lights are strobing yeah. the camera's handheld we're in these strange pov shots we're running through corridors wait can i ask you a question yeah do you think veronica cartwright's death is somewhat sexual well, this is one of the things Be in the film. Because the, the thing, the alien wraps around her leg and moves slowly up, and then we hear There's her. There's no question that that is, here's an interesting thing. Yeah. That is not her leg. Oh, okay. That is Harry Dean Stanton's leg. <laughs> That's a shot from, uh, I'm glad you brought it up. That's a shot from his death that they didn't use, and they oh, brought it in this great. for exactly the reason you're talking about. And there's a strange sexual element there in is. alien movies. Veronica Cartwright's description of the Giger art yeah. is that you're walking into penises and vaginas. Wow. You know, that's what she says. Okay. And I, I never think of it this mm, way. Neither do I. But clearly the filmmakers do because mm -hmm. when we get to Sigourney in the uh, shuttle at the yeah. end, yep. there is Sigourney Weaver talks about a sexual element. Yes, there is. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, and so it's like, oh, wow, there's some weird, right. some weird stuff in there. Yeah. All right. Well, so, this, yeah. this brings up a question I want to ask you, yeah. which is... In this chaos of Sigourney's, first she's trying to stop blowing mm -hmm. up the ship. Mm -hmm. She fails to do that, and then mm -hmm. she's going to rush to the, the shuttle. Yeah. The alien runs into the cat. Yes. Does the alien move the cat as bait or use that? 
No, I think the cat. I think he moves it out of the way because the cat is inconsequential. He can't eat it. He he doesn't want to kill it because it's it's irrelevant to him. It's he wants the human, the bigger prey. I think he's after the bigger prey. So he just, I think he just smacks the cat out of the way. I think I, it could be that. Yeah, I, that's it, what it I also, got. But it's also Sigourney is going to have to look around for the cat. Possibly. And I wonder yeah. because because one of the things I wonder about the alien. Yeah. How intelligent is this creature? Well, well, and and. Uh, Ash refers to that when he gets brought back to life and says he's a, he's a complete, he's a perfect hunting machine, right? Like Jaws. They say that in Jaws. Right. He's a perfect hunt. You know, the... the, the Swims and the, eats and makes Exactly. The respect that Quint has for, the, for a shark is it's a, it's a perfect eating machine. And so that kind of thing is what we're talking about here in the same thing. It, and you're right. You're right. It's got a big head for a reason. It must have a massive brain, maybe. And it can figure out this situation. And maybe she's, he's using the cat as bait for Sigourney. Yeah. This whole perfect eating machine, we're going to talk about... By the way, <laughs> we believe Jaws is coming up. Yes. So just so you know, it's yes. in the works. Yeah. Jaws the movie that I have very strong feelings about. Yes, you but do. We're going to get into this perfect eating machine thing because that is a ridiculous silly. <laughs> like, what is that? I don't know what that means. A as, a do- I, as, a, yeah, as a guy who directed a documentary of sharks, please, you're going to break down all these things. I know. Um, but, but, <laughs> we, because what's interesting, yeah. if this was a Star Trek movie, yes. we would try to talk to the animal. Of course. In fact, this is, you know, there's a Star Trek episode, very mm-hmm. famous Devil in the Dark. Devil in the Dark. Which is about this creature that's in these mines. It has these eggs and it's killing all these miners. Right. And really, it's just trying to protect its eggs. Right. But they think it's an evil monster and they find out that it's an intelligent creature. Because Spock a mind melts. Because Spock, Spock melts, mind yeah. melts with yeah. the big, you know, carpet whatever thing, is, whatever yeah. that thing is. So if this was Star Trek, that's what we'd be doing. Right. This is not Star Trek. Nope. This thing is never treated that it might be intelligent. Yeah. And, and yet some of its behavior seems like, is it trapping them? Is it, you know? Oh, it's hunting them. I think it's quite intelligent. Right. So you might be right because it knows where to hide. It knows how to hide yeah. and it knows how to unsettle everyone else. Well, and this brings us to the space, to the shuttle. Yes. So Sigourney makes it into the shuttle. She pulls away at the last seconds as things are counting down. Mm-hmm. There's an explosion. The, the Nostromo blows up and she goes, mm-hmm. I got you. Yeah. And we think it's the end of the movie. You son of a bitch. Yeah. Right? Uh, and it's not the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. And here's a couple of interesting things. So first of all, this sequence in the shuttle is not in the original script. Oh. It was supposed to be blown up in the Nostromo. Okay. While they're shooting, near the end of the shoot, uh, Ridley Scott goes to Fox and says, I need more money. I want to shoot four more days. And they go, what? You're already over budget. No, you can't have any more money. And then he pitches them what he wants to do, yeah. and they give him more money. <laughs> oh, nice. And, what I'm wondering, is this the quote-unquote first fourth act in film history? Ooh. I don't know that it is. It's the first one I can think of. It's a valid question. Where we think the movie is over, yeah. everything is wrapped up as if the movie is over, yeah. and the movie is not over. Right. Mm-hmm. Is it the first one? Maybe, brother. I, it's a question that I don't know if I can answer right now on the spot without doing some research, but I, you can make a case. You can absolutely make a case. Because this then has to put it into my... My list of movies, the great movies that ruin Hollywood, you know, which is the, is that, because here's no, this. No, the movies don't ruin Hollywood. The people imitating these things ruin Hollywood. Of course, Hollywood. Yes. of course. That yes. is what, that is the key. <laughs> yes. But that's a longer title for my, sure, this, this list. Sure. For your future <laughs> Great book. movies who other people imitated poorly, thus ruining Hollywood, does not sound as good as great movies that ruin Hollywood. It's called fair, brevity. Fair, fair. Um, because that fourth act structure. Yeah. Oh, no, there's going to be one more thing. Yeah. Which we saw in. You know, fatal attraction, I, fatal attraction, yeah, 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 any number yeah. of things. Yeah. yeah, Die Hard three, like mm-hmm. all these. Even movies Friday the Thirteenth. Yeah, it's yeah. like, oh, he's dead. No, he's not dead. And then you have to have the fifth the act, Halloween, yeah. or the sixth. Like, oh no, he's dead. No, he's not dead. No, he's right. dead. No, he's not dead. Right. It's like just stop, <laughs> just you know? stop already. Yeah. So we we end up. She's 
quietly and slowly getting undressed. Yeah. And there is such because vo- we know it's not over no, at this point. Right. That that you know you know what kind of movie you're in. The the movie the music is still scary. Mm-hmm. And by the way, do have to talk about uh, Jerry Goldsmith. Yeah. This is a another great score. We talked about mm-hmm. him before with uh, Planet of the Apes. Yes. This is another really great score from him. Yeah. I mean the 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 tension of it, the dissonance of it, it's really really powerful. Yeah. And uh, there's something very vulnerable in its privacy about mm-hmm. Sigourney Weaver getting undressed. Yeah. It's really creepy and scary. Yeah, and she's wearing white panties and they barely fit and they're tight around her uh, uh, hips. Yeah. And then when she bends over or like leans over, it turns out you see her ass crack completely. Yeah. And so it's an interesting choice, right? I, I used to think it was sexual, but this is this is a person who's trying to kind of like get into like because they when they woke up out of deep sleep they're all wearing barely anything so like well, it's a lot she's about to go into deep sleep. What I would say is it's very private. Yes, you feel like a voyeur. Yes, agreed. You, you feel like Absolutely. I'm not supposed to be seeing this. Right, right. That's it's, fair. And part of it is because it is not the perfectly sexy whatever. Right. Do you know what I mean? Like which is being served up for me the audience right. to ogle right. at the beautiful woman. This right. is it's a woman getting undressed. What right. are you looking at this for? Right, you know, it's a good point. And 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 there's also this thing that Sigourney Weaver we talked about before, is that this weird sexual nature of mm-hmm. this last moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as she's doing this, there's this moment where you see this weird shape in the shuttle, <laughs> which she doesn't see, and you're going like, "That is that a, is that its head? Is yeah. that its head?" And it is so great. The the alien is hiding in this mm-hmm. thing. Here's my question: Why is it not attacking her? I never understand. Oh, I don't know. That's a good question. Because it's a long time. I mean, it's, it's not, not like the thing is slow. It's not in the script for her to take. <laughs> yeah. I would say. No, but I think it's also, what's the rush? Yeah. Right? It's gonna, time. It's going to wait till the shuttle takes off a little while, and then it's going to do what it's going to do, and maybe it's going to go. Like, if you say this thing's intelligent, then it's already figuring out how to go and, and create. Because oh, what we saw before she gets in that shuttle, which we didn't talk about yet or in depth, is like she goes down and sees Tom Skerritt. Right. He's essentially creating a breeding ground for right. his future aliens or for something to occur out of there. And so he's cre- so he's probably going to wait to do the same with Sigourney. Right. And so he's waiting well, for the, the right time. That, yeah. Again, as we said, that his job is to make little aliens right and that's what he's going to try to do yeah um and the and, hand come jumps out yeah yeah and she so she she goes and backs up and puts herself into a spacesuit. yep and i think that scene is so well done yeah i agree of her in holding down the panic and having to do this physical thing yeah. that is difficult yeah. you know it's probably not easy to get in a spacesuit under mm-hmm. norm, normal circumstances and, and it's one of those things that in action films tend to be that you've got a character who's shot and wounded and doing all this stuff, and yet they still are running around and doing everything yeah. with ease. Yeah. And this is a scene where it's not easy, mm-hmm. and that's part of what makes it scary and really strong, yeah. is she's trying to do something hard, and the hard thing is put on this outfit. Yeah. I know that sounds, but to me, it's just a beautifully done scene. Agreed. Opens up the air vent, uses, I don't know, why she has a harpoon gun? Just in case. Because that's something that comes up. (laughs) (laughs) Uses the harpoon gun, shoots it out, but now it's attached and she closes the airlock in Mm -hmm. time. And then I just love burning him up in that engine and the thruster. Because it tries to stay alive to climb in through the engine thruster, yeah. Yeah. Um, And by the way, do you know how they did that effect? No. So the engine's just like, how are we going to shoot this thruster at him? It's water. 
Oh. This is Ridley Scott's oh, idea. Wow. It's water pouring out of the engine, mm. really brightly lit by a big arc light behind it. Yeah. And looking through and shot in slow motion. And it and, and this is all Ridley Scott's idea. Yeah. And he said, Oh, it's plasma. And then someone said, What's plasma? And he says, I don't know, but it sounds good. <laughs> yeah, and that's how they do that effect. That's great. And now we really have reached the end of the film. Yeah, and I love this ending with because the film changes. Like it the scope of it, it becomes like almost cinerama yeah. in, in its way. And then you hear this like very operatic score that's yeah. like, ah, oh, okay, we're yeah. all right. We're okay. Yeah. And it's it's a relief operatic score, which we hear every once yeah, in a while. It's beautiful in films like and harmonious, yep. unlike anything we've heard throughout the film. Yep. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what a great film, dude. <laughs> Final thoughts on Alien. Oh, my gosh. If you haven't seen this in a long time, just like Steve hasn't seen it in a while, and I hadn't seen it in a few months, at least, or over a year, it is so great to go back and rediscover this movie. It is one of the greatest horror noir films that you're ever going to see. And I say noir because condensation, water is prevalent through the film. It's shot in a lot of darkness. You don't know what's happening next. You don't know where the t- who's going to turn on you. You have betrayal. You have everything that leads. And you have this incredible creature that you cannot overcome. This incredible thing you don't see coming. And once again, it's from a higher power. You know, in all noirs, it's a one person against this thing or a couple of people against this thing. And the thing is bigger than they actually think it is. And they have to fight it. And so to me, what's so amazing about this film is from top to bottom, it takes you on an amazing ride. It takes its time. It does not insult the audience in any way, shape, or form. It makes you come to it, and it really pays off in so many ways throughout the whole film with the acting, with the directing, with the design, and with the score. Absolutely. Yeah, so for me, while this film will never quite live up to my sister's telling of the story <laughs> when I was 11, um, what's yeah. interesting to me in all seriousness about this film is like a lot of great films, yeah. there's nothing like it. Yes. There's nothing like this film. Agreed. Even though this film spawned a whole bunch of sequels sure. and a whole world, comic books and all that stuff, none of them are like this. Yeah. That this combines in this very strange way this kind of 70s style of acting mm-hmm. and realism and even this sort of Robert Altman way of approaching performance yeah. along with this unbelievable design sense with this uh, very spare use of dialogue and mostly visual storytelling, mm-hmm. beautiful sound design, and it's a very, very simple movie. Like if you're going to actually break down the actions – yeah. Not that much happened. There wasn't that much for my sister to remember right. to tell this story in real time because it's very, very simple. Yeah. And yet it has such lasting power. And and this is what we see, I think, when Ridley Scott is good. Yeah. Which he isn't always. No, right, true. You know, he I think to me he's one of these directors who he'll make a great movie mm-hmm. and then there'll be two or three that you're like, just don't care about them at all. Yeah. And maybe you think he's done. There's not gonna and then there's yeah. another great and the Martian movie. shows up yeah. Yeah. yeah is that when he's good he, he gets all those elements to work together in mm-hmm. just the right way the visual elements mm-hmm. the character elements the story elements and when he's and the visual elements are almost always good in his films mm-hmm. but it's the other stuff that kind of magical stuff which is so uh, apparent in Alien mm-hmm. that sometimes isn't there it's a masterpiece man yeah it, no it's a fantastic film and I love the quote on the poster in space no one can hear you scream that is a it's great line brilliant man There's, I don't know what the top 10, um, you know, movie taglines are, yeah, but that's, that's right up there. Yeah, I agree. Um, 
Okay. <laughs> so that's what we think of Alien. Obviously, we had a lot to say. Yeah. We'd love to hear what you think of Alien. You can visit us on Facebook. We're at the Cinephiles. That's C-I-N-E dash F-I-L-E-S. But throw away the dash if you're on Stitcher mm-hmm. because Stitcher doesn't like dashes. It's just C-I-N-E, new word, F-I-L-E-S. That's how you find us there. Please subscribe to us on Stitcher or on iTunes. That's where most people have found us. Yeah. And while you're doing some subscribing on iTunes, you know what you might want to do? Take an extra minute. There's a little button there that says review. Hit that review button. Put in five stars. Yes, five stars. I think this review <laughs> deserves it. I agree. And uh, and then write really nice things about both John and I. Yes. Um, you know you want to. We need it sometimes. We're it's nice very, to read compliments. Very needy people. Yeah, it's true. Um, and uh, and that would really help us out. In all yeah. seriousness, those reviews help bring us up in the ratings. Helps people find the show. It makes it much more likely that we get to keep doing this. And we mm-hmm. really love doing this. And as we said at the beginning of the show, one of the things we love most is communicating with you so if you want yeah. to communicate with me reach out to me on twitter at sr morris john where can they reach you uh, you can always find me at the roca says r-o-c-h-a uh and on twitter and on instagram yeah i'm not quite on instagram maybe at some point i'll do that yeah um, you are but you're not active yeah I, right. I'm the, I, I have an account yes i can tag you but you don't ever respond <laughs> <laughs> have you like, yes. you probably have many times oh wow yeah, yeah no that's I, all right. I, I don't know so yeah maybe all right maybe i'll have to start getting on instagram yeah um anyway <laughs> But we digress. Right. And we are going to digress right into the end of the show. That's it for this week. We will see you next time on The Cinephiles. <laughs>